extremely timely uh, forum on the recent Latin American elections. And we have three extraordinary and provocative speakers to share some ideas about recent political, what appears to be uh, significant political changes in the electoral landscape of Latin, of Latin America. Um, as you all know, the briefing series that we organize here at the Center for Latin American Studies are devoted to address issues of, uh, of actualidad, as we will say in Spanish, no, uh, in Latin America. You're, of course, you're all here because you're aware that uh, the way that the press has been covering recent uh, elections in Uruguay, Argentina, Chile, and Brazil is uh, as if uh, the continent is turning left. Uh, as of while Canada and the U.S. is turning ultra-right. Um, so um, the question I think that we are posing, as you saw in the, in, the, in, the, in the flyer, is turning left as a question. And it's, uh, the question mark there is uh, signals that are desired to put pressure on the very notion of left. Uh, what is left? I mean, what does left mean in these days? No, left, left, no. So let me introduce you the speakers uh, today. Our first speaker is Professor Mamabel Moraña, who is the William H. Gass Professor of Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis, where she directs the Latin American Studies program. A native of Uruguay, she received her PhD from the University of Minnesota, and she has held several professorial positions at American and Latin American universities. From 1996 to 2002, she was a chair of the Department of Hispanic Languages and Literatures at the University of Pittsburgh. She's currently the, the director of publications and the director of the Instituto Internacional de Literatura Iberoamericana, which publishes the very prestigious Revista Iberoamericana, and five series of books on Latin American literary and cultural studies. She has published extensively in her areas of expertise, Latin American colonial literature, cultural criticism, cultural theory, nation and modernity, and women writers, and is the author of a, a myriad of books that I will spend here perhaps the whole afternoon if I were to number them. Um, the second speaker is Larry Burns, who has been the director of the Council on Hemispheric Affairs since its founding in 1975, a former defense researcher and strategist, and member of the Institute for Strategic Studies in London, and the All School, Seoul School uh, College, Oxford Military Seminar. He was a senior great public affairs officer for the United Nations Economic Commission for Latin America in Santiago, Chile. He has taught and lectured for 15 years in the fields of Latin American studies, comparative government, and international law at a number of U.S. and British colleges and universities. And again, I, won't, I can't go on and on about his publications, which are um, numberless. And the third speaker is uh, Fernando Coronil, uh, who is actually part of the family. He received his PhD from the University of Chicago and is currently an associate professor of anthropology and history at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor and the director of the Latin American and Caribbean Studies Program. His research focuses on contemporary historical transformations in Latin America and on theoretical issues concerning the state, modernity, and postcolonialism. Uh, his book, The Magical State, Nature, Money, and Modernity in Venezuela, have won wide acclaim for its studies of Venezuela's transformation into a dominant economic, institutional, and political force. So please welcome me, help, I mean, join me in welcoming uh, our three speakers. And um, the, the more or less the format is that you each will have 15 minutes to do your intervention, and then we'll have an open uh, 
Q&A session. Thank you. Okay, uh, what I'm going to present is a general reflection on the current political situation in Latin America and on its uh, possible uh, cultural impacts. Uh, it's a very tentative uh, proposal, so we'll have an opportunity to talk about it. Uh, at the beginning of the 21st century, uh, we are witnessing what would have been considered a few years ago an improbable scenario, a series of political transformations that have been characterized by the media as the Latin American turn to the left. In the Southern Cone, a reality which is a little more familiar to me, the political scenery follows the social and political recovery of countries that were dismantled by dictatorships during the 1970s and part of the 80s, which destroyed what was left of the welfare state. Cultural institutions, economic structures, and political parties collapsed in the region, leaving civil societies under the shadow of debilitated states dominated by external debt and uh, by the depredatory effects of neoliberalism. Under these circumstances, the left was, for many, the most propitious device to capitalize collective disenchantment. After the sweeping effects of authoritarianism, the return of the left demonstrates, at least, its ability for internal restructuring, for social recovery, and for ideological adjustment to new political and economical uh, challenges. Nevertheless, we should start, in my opinion, by accepting two facts. The first, that the different political regimes currently in power in Latin America cannot be considered under just one label, given the unique ideological characteristics and the specific social constituencies each of these political movements mobilize and incorporate. Secondly, we should accept the fact that even in the cases in which we can still speak of leftist movements, this denomination applies today to political experiences that have little resemblance with what uh, we used to identify under that name. Nowadays, the left, obviously marked by the ideological impact of past struggles and undeniable failures, is also affected by the disappearance of what we call real socialism in Eastern Europe and by the consolidation of neoliberalism and globalization at a planetary level under a renovated American hegemony. At the same time, the processes of institutionalization that the left has uh, gone through in order to conquer power by democratic means have also contributed to the domestication of its ethos. ethos. Without a doubt, current political experiences in Venezuela, Bolivia, Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay notoriously differ from the paradigms established by the emancipatory movements, movements of national liberation following the Cuban Revolution. Very few elements in the ideology and in the administration of the regimes that are called nowadays leftist movements evoke, in fact, the hard content we used to attach to the idea of the left in the second half of the 20th century. In the case of Uruguay, ending a period of 170 years under the control of traditional parties, and also in the case of the Socialist Coalition or Concertación in Chile, 
The conquest of power by Tabaré Vázquez and uh, Michel Bachelet is the result of programmatic alliances based on political and ideological compromises, as well as the product of a long process of accumulation of political credibility by progressive political sectors during the uh, last few decades. In Argentina, the maneuvers for economic recovery and reconnection of civil society have been implemented from a platform that articulates in variable proportions populism and neoliberalism. In Brazil, the largest leftist party in Latin America and probably in the world arrives into power only to initiate right after its electoral triumph what has been characterized as its melancholic descent. None of these scenarios can be assimilated to the more radical political experiences represented by Venezuelan Chavismo or by the election of Evo Morales in recent elections in Bolivia. Ollanta Humala in Peru and Andrés Manuel López Obrador in Mexico constitute other potential variables to the model that some, I repeat, insist in calling the Latin American turn to the left. Now, without minimizing uh, the substantial differences between the political experiences mentioned above, what follows is a brief account of a series of features that could contribute to illustrate the transformation of political paradigms I alluded before and the impact these changes are having or will have on, or might have on collective imaginaries in the region. And I'm going to mention briefly a few features uh, that I thought might be useful to think about some of, the, uh, might apply to some of these movements at least. First of all, substitution of armed struggles by institutional or ele electoral means to reach power. Substitution of the discourse of class struggle by the rhetoric of social justice. Considerable opposition to privatization, but at the same time adoption in, in several places of conciliatory attitudes towards market economy, and general acceptance of the conditions necessary for economic integration, both regionally and globally. Revitalization of the principle of national sovereignty and attempts within that framework to strengthen the role of the state as an agent of social transformation cautious and selective opposition to transnational corporations and to national policies destined to protect foreign investment. Adherence to non-intervention principles and regional solidarity, announcement for instance in some cases of intention to re-establish relations with Cuba. As a result of these positions, deepening of North-South antagonisms in terms that might trigger, according to some, USA's ideological offensiveness similar to, to that utilized during the Cold War. Reinforcement of the attention to problems of social inequality in substitution to the more liberal multiculturalist consideration of cultural difference. Emphasis on ethics as the fundamental or even the foundational element of the political. Another element that I consider interesting and meaningful in the political experiences of what we uh, could call institutionalized left is the fact that they cannot be understood but as the counterpart of social movements that exist outside the limit of traditional politics, although in some cases also become part of state management, eh, depending on, on the different examples. In the last few decades, 
the human rights movements in the southern cone, the Semterra movement in Brazil, the Zapatista movement in Chiapas, the Cocalero movement and the multiple indigenous mobilizations in the Andes create new, con new conditions for a reconfiguration of the political that substantially alter traditional protocols, particularly those related to popular interpolation and to the relations between popular sectors and state institutions. If at some point the question was if the social movements would be able to translate defensive action into offensive strategies, transforming social demands into political programs, and if the multiple agendas of different social sectors could be articulated in an organic, unified way, recent political experiences in Latin America seem to give a positive response to those interrogations. Now, from a cultural perspective, it could be said that important transformations appear in the horizon of Latin America's collective imaginaries. The first one, a new conceptualization of national popular subjectivities, sujeto nacional eh, popular, that means of the equalities, expectation, eh, expectations, and habitus of social agents. In other words, the connections between the social, the political, the ideological, and the cultural, as opposed to the traditional connections between society, politics, ideology, and culture, seem also to interweave in different manners in the constitution of collective subjectivities that interact within the framework of what we might call the national culture. Rather, rather what I'm calling the social, the political, the ideological, and the cultural, lo social, lo politico, etc., point to mobilizations that traverse those domains without being yet institutionalized, where the agents, the agendas, and the articulations between social sectors may be characterized as spontaneous, discontinuous, and fluctuating impulses acting from below. Also, at least three paradigms that have been considered, at least by some critics, almost obsolete in the last few decades, like the modern concepts of nation, state, and national identity, seem to be refurbishing under the activation of local politics and ethnic or, or and ideological particularisms. In connection with this, I want to mention the importance I see of new forms of internationalism. We could consider, for instance, Evo Morales being only the top of the iceberg of indigenous movements that have been always active in the Andean region, Hugo Chavez as the leader of transnational forms of populism, national politics in the southern cone as a regional articulation around Mercosur, and so on. Within this context, the national must be rethought, in my opinion, in two directions that only appear as opposed. First, the national is the inescapable platform of popular mobilizations and processes of social group regrouping and political reorganization. Secondly, the national is the basis for a political projection uh, that would go from the local to the regional to the national to the transnational. So internationalism constitutes nowadays a political feature that should be, in my opinion, reanalyzed and re-theorized. Another concept that is under transformation is that of the state as the place from which institutional order is supposed to emerge, the state is the space where popular demands are addressed, uh, are addressed to, and in that sense constitutes the internal frontier against which popular agents define their political action. 
but in the new scenarios, those dominated by leftist or populist positions, new conceptions of the state might be in progress, since the state must be displaced negativity towards an antagonistic location situated outside itself. The state cannot continue being considered as a, the empty signifier that we may associate with the cancellation of traditional politics. On the contrary, this perception must be replaced by one in which the state is the space of negotiation and management, gestion, that means it must be the objective of new strategies of social recognition. In, still in other words, the state must be inscribed in a new horizon of legitimate representativity at, as the new image of popular power. In connection with the changes in the concept of the state, the concept of nation must also be reconceptualized to signify not only a well-defined political and administrative space, but also a sovereign but well-connected unity in relation to the processes of globalization, mundialization, and regional integration. In other words, national states are not only a place for political and ideological interpolation, but also a function or a, a function or a platform for the construction and administration of national identities destined to represent social agents in times of political and ideological change. As for the concept of social identity itself, some critics have detected a change from the idea of democratic subject that conceived as a differential subject who is the agent of concrete and particularist demands to the idea of popular subject, a subject that is constructed by aggregation, that means through the plurality of demands that have not been absorbed by the democratic system. To put all of this in a more abstract form, it could be said that current changes in Latin American politics call for, call for a reflection on the relations between localism and totality in order to analyze the articulations that connect civil society and political society. At the same time, some models of the Latin American political culture, culture that were present during the second part of the 20th century, like that of political and intellectual heroism, are making their return in current scenarios. Also, at a cultural level, it would be interesting to see how rep representational strategies and even the function of intellectuals modify themselves in connection with populist agendas or leftist political programs. In other words, how progressive agendas, progressive agendas can advance in a political scenario dominated as much by local agendas as by the impulses of globalization and the impositions of neoliberalism. That's all. <laughs> To you. No, I defer to you. you want to... <laughs> no, I'll defer to you. Okay. <laughs> um, well, this works. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you very much, Agnes and uh, Chris and Christelle, for inviting me and also for the work. And uh, thank you all for being here and listening to this. Um, I had it was a, you know a very I was very happy when I was invited for two reasons. One was because it's uh, always nice for me to come back to the University of Chicago where I studied. In fact, the last time I was in this room, it was at the 
you know, we, the, uh, students, Latin American students had an organization called OLAS, Organization of Latin American Students, and we had a party here. So I remember this room with, you know, in a different kind of context, but an image of a vibrant party. Well, not so vibrant. It was hard to have vibrant parties, but it was a good party. And uh, it was hard to get people to dance, that's for sure. Um, but, you know, we always have good conversations anyway. This is typical University of Chicago, life of the mind that forget about the body. Uh, you know, we try to counter that. Uh, the second reason is because uh, the subject, uh, you know, we were invited to talk about, to think about the left and elections and are we moving left and all of that. It's a subject that uh, I'm very confused about. So on the one hand, of course, I'm very happy to be able to talk about this, but I have to confess that, you know, I, I am anxious because I don't really have a clear, you know, I, you know, I, I would like to, to see this as, a, as an effort to share with uh, the, the two panelists and all of you some doubts and concerns and anxieties about what the whole thing of this movement or towards something that has been called the left. What is this movement? What does it represent? What are its possibilities? What are the risks? And so I'm, I'm of many minds about this. So what I'm going to do today very briefly, I hope, is, um, a, you know, share with you some thoughts and I have divided them into five it's very schematic propositions and a tiny example about Venezuela and so I'll, I'll you know it's, it's kind of a schematic but the basic idea is to try to, 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 to offer some kind of framework to think about the question of what's happening in Latin America is this movement to the left and what is the left so my first point is about the multivocality or the polysemic nature of the very term left, right and left. And to keep in mind that this is a term that has multiple meanings and part of the, I think, of the struggle of, the, of whatever we call the left is the struggle for giving this term some significance. So that, that's the first point. And uh, in, in my, my mind, at any rate, I think that one of the criteria that we can use to think about this is a question of power. To what extent, I think if you think of a, of a, a range of uh, one thing would be, the right would be a, a situation in which you have a concentration of power in few hands, and the left would be a situation in which you have a democratization of power. And of course, the terms, you know, democratization, power, whatever, are very complicated terms, but we can maybe split the notion of power in, or unpack it, think of it politically if you wish, and maybe we can think of a, a range between, you know, very authoritarian or totalitarian regimes to regimes that are much more democratic, according to all kinds of criteria, from political, you know, formal criteria to more substantial ones. We can think of it also economically, and I think if we think of a range, we can think maybe of situations in which, particularly now, restricting the historical range of pro-market to anti-market situations, and maybe pro-market you can think of close to maybe to both liberal and also to conservative, right? And anti-market maybe at this point more left. And this can take the form of, in the past, socialism, in the present maybe some kind of maybe not anti-market, but modifying the market through the hand, helping hand of the state. Culturally, I think we can think of different forms of, if you want, of universalism, from Eurocentric forms of universalism, you know, can call them white, white flat, androcentric, sexist, classist, elitistic, if you want, or, you know, very, you know, you know based on the European experience of Anglo, North America, you know, notion of universality, or we can think of in terms of ample, diverse, plural notions of universalism, or, you know, diversalism, or there are many ways of multi-versality, you know, there are many ways of thinking about this in which you have different ways of imagining 
social uh, life, you know, in, in which, and of course this brings together perspectives from, you know, critics, feminist critics and indigenous critics, etc., etc. So, uh, you know, this is like a basic scheme. So that's concerning, you know, right and left, concentration of power, dispersion of power, different ways of imagining society, different ways of organizing both the economy and the political system from situations in which you have concentration of power to situations in which you have democratization of power. So the left would be, of course, the democratization of power. The second point would be some kind of just recognition that the terms right and left have had a global life and always have a global life. They started, of course, with the French Revolution and they had to do something with the notion of how people sat together in the assembly and it had to do with notions of inclusion and exclusion, who was going to participate in the life of the nation. But from then on, it has had these terms have had you know, a complicated global life. And I just want to basically refer to three periods which are more recent, after the French Revolution. One, of course, during the 20th century, they were very deeply connected with a polarity between capitalism and socialism. So that ca under capitalism, you had, at least in, in thinking of Latin America, you had the right. And, you know, some liberal center if you, within the scheme, you would be the left who is associated with socialism and the right with extreme forms of, you know, free market capitalism. Of course, then, uh, with the end of the Cold War and the fall of the Berlin Wall, you had a different kind of contest. And it was not so much a contest between capitalism and socialism and somehow the identifying right and left and those in that polarity. But of course, when you had capitalism as the only horizon, what you had was almost a tension between free market capitalism and Keynesian capitalism or welfare capitalism. And the right was associated with free market capitalism and the left became associated with you know, state-regulated capitalism. And of course, the, the Washington Consensus was the notion of the you know, free market capitalism. And I think one of the things that is happening now, and this is a context in which we are seeing this development of the left in Latin America, or the so-called left in Latin America, is what has been called, you know, if you look at what happened in Latin America from 1980, let's say, to 2000 and now, I mean 2006, it has been the breakdown, if you want, of the Washington Consensus, the failure of the Washington Consensus to deliver the goods. You have an increasing poverty in Latin America, disparity of income, marginalization, etc., etc. So, in, fact, so far, in, in some ways, what we have now is a consensus that the Washington consensus didn't work out, and some kind of solution has to develop. And it is within this context that then we have this emergence of responses to the crisis of the last 20 years, a crisis that is a result of the limitations of the Washington consensus could be interpreted in some ways by you know, the very logic of the, of, the, of, the, of the free market, but to some extent also of many other factors, including, in some cases, that maybe the difficulty of applying the Washington Consensus, the, the principles of the Washington Consensus. So the, the third point um, is, uh, if you think, I mean, I'm thinking globally now, but if you think hemispherically, that there has been some kind of weird, strange counterpoint between North and South, or the U.S. and the rest of Latin America. If you think of political shifts in terms of right and left, the U.S. in the last 20 years or so has moved to, to the right, okay? And uh, in, in fact, whatever the left was in the U.S., let's say if we can associate the left maybe with the Democratic Party, which 
maybe it's an exaggeration, but if we imagine that, we can see that even the Democratic Party has moved to the right and the, and the agenda has been defined by, by, by the right at this point. And if you look at Latin America, you see that on the, on the contrary, after a period of dictatorships and in which the right actually was in command in many, many situations, there has been a, a movement towards democracy and then increasingly when those democratic reforms, which very much, many of them were implementing measures of, related to the Washington Consensus have failed, then there is this emergence of more uh, radical rhetoric, at least in terms of rhetorical, more radical demands from different groups. So you have the U.S. moving to the right, Latin America moving to the left, but you also have, paradoxically, almost the left moving to the right. So you have, you know, in some ways, yes, if, the, if Latin America is moving to the left, but the left is moving to the right, you don't know if Latin America is, is moving where, you know, because it could be moving to the left, but if the left is moving to the right, then maybe it's moving to the center, or maybe it's a strange left. So it's, it's very hard to map this kind of those tension. But one of the things that I think is clear that is whatever way you map it, it's in relationship to each other. That, for instance, to the extent that the U.S. is moving to the right, and part of that movement includes an increasing role of the U.S. as an you know, the U.S. defined itself, I mean, American historians, and many of you know much more about this than I do, have defined, you know, like the reluctance to think of the U.S. as, in the American, in U.S. historiography, as, as an empire. You know, William Apple, Williams, Amy Kaplan, all kinds of people have talked about this notion that the U.S. is a republic and took the denial, the suppression of its imperial roots and also practices throughout the 19th and 20th century, starting in 1848, if you want, with taking over half of Mexico, 1898, etc., etc. So, but what, we ha what happened after September 11 was almost the proud recognition that the U.S. is an empire, you know, a reluctant empire in some cases, but, and I think part of what, or in, a necessary empire, and some people like Niall Ferguson at Harvard criticized the U.S. not for being imperial, but for not being imperial enough, that the U.S. has to assume this kind of imperial role, and you know, all kinds of people are defending and proposing that. So in that kind of context, I think part of what's happening is that some people in Latin America, which has a long tradition of engagement with the U.S., are responding, and that appears as very much as left. So we have to think of the left and right as in relational terms. So there is this kind of hemispheric counterpoint between right and left. So the fourth point is a, a notion of whatever we mean by the left. We have to think of the left, as Mabel pointed out, as profoundly heterogeneous. You know, we might have difficulty in defining it, but I think one step would be to unpack it. Not to think that it is one thing, but it is many, many things. And to not just many things, but to try to see how we can find a way of, of thinking analytically about it. And I would offer, uh, at least as a helpful, maybe device, maybe not, but it's a way that helps me think about it, is to make a distinction between the loci, the locus, where the left could could be identified, and one would be at the level of the state, of state institutions. I think you might have thought of it in terms of the institutionalization of the institutionalized left. The state, the left that is occupies state institutions, and the left that is occupies spaces in society, grassroots movements, social movements, political parties. And I think it makes a difference whether you think of it at one level or another. At the state level, of course, there is a huge difference between, let's say, a Lula and a Chavez, or a Kirchner, or a Bachelet. And those are very different, you know, if you think of those regimes as representing some kind of left, they're very, very different. In fact, if you read the U.S. press now, 
one of the things that the U.S. always says, and the press, the media always say, concerning, for instance, the forthcoming elections in Mexico, López Obrador, uh, is whether he's going to be of the Lula type or of the Chavez types. I mean, you know, Lula is the good guy who is more or less working within this kind of framework of the system, and Chavez is seen as the kind of crazy guy who is working on the fringes of the system or against the system. So there is a whole range between these different uh, people, uh, these different representatives of the state, but also there is a difference between, let's say, the movements connected with these leaders. You know, the, one thing is the mass of, the, of Evo Morales, the Movimiento de los Cocaleros, another thing is the San Tierra in Brazil, another thing is the PT, uh, the other thing is the, you know, the, the people who brought Chavez to power, all kinds of different political parties and movements. And so we have a heterogeneity of people with different and indigenous movements with their own agendas and their own cosmovisions of the world. So we have a whole heterogeneous set of actors. And for convenience sake, I would want to think of the difference between at the state level and also at the grassroots or societal level. And I think that if you think of, it, of this, you, it might be helpful to think of this not only synchronically, but also diachronically, that it makes a difference. Once you have a movement that maybe had many radical demands, but once it comes to the state, then you might see a shift. For instance, that happened with Lucio Gutierrez in Ecuador, anti-IMF, but anti-neoliberal globalization. Once it is in the state, then changes policies. That happened also in Venezuela with Rafael Caldera in, in, in 1994 when he was elected against Carlos Andrés Pérez. He came to power in 1994. In 1996 he said, no hay más remedio, we have to uh, implement these neoliberal measures. I interviewed Eduardo Petkov, an ex-guerrilla leader who was the Minister of the Plan de, de, de Caldera, and I asked him, well, you know, what do you think of this? I said, well, Fernando, you know, one thing, is to, one thing I learned by being in the state, one thing is to make demands from the opposition and other things to be in the state and then to try to implement those things. It makes a radical difference, the occasion from which you articulate these demands. So, um, profound heterogeneity of the left, the difference between whether it comes from demands from society or whether when you assume the ro uh, positions in the state. And my fifth and last proposition is that if you look at then the left within the state, and of course the theme of this conference is elections, and we're thinking of you know, a process in which some people are going to be elected into positions of state power, then to think of the state, as I think Mabel was also suggesting, as this very kind of complicated, you know, ensemble of institutions, agencies, complicated stuff, the state, it's very hard to theorize the state, but one thing that one has to recognize is whatever the state is, it is the locus of profound tensions between the global dimensions of, let's say, what we could call accumulation, the economic activity, the globalization of the market, and the national basis of political legitimation. Somehow the state is torn between the tension to respond to national demands, or demands which are mostly national, they are also international, but mostly demands of legitimacy that are national, but also economic demands which are international. And that articulation is very, very difficult. And I think one of the things that I think we're seeing now in Latin America is that many of these state officials, from Lula to Bachelet to Chavez to Evo Morales, who come with a platform which might be critical of neoliberal globalization, end up then, once they're in the state, caught in a profound tension between those dem demands that are national, coming from the grassroots movements or the movements that, left, uh, that promoted 
the, the, the ascension to power and the, the constraints they, they face as leaders of nations which, which find states which are indebted or already deals with multinational corporations in the energy sector, in the mining sector, in the agricultural sector, and there is a set of compromises that need to take place and the negotiation of that becomes a center of political disputes and also huge secrecy and, and, and mystery because much of that happens precisely behind the back of what of national understandings because those, those negotiations sometimes are very, very complicated. So, um, well, those are the five propositions and I just want to give a brief example of Chavez who is um, you know, often portrayed as one of, in the range of all these people who have been already elected and as the most radical and, and also as, you know, the continuous threat to the U.S. And, and I think that, you know, I, I obviously I could talk to Venezuela for a long time, but I just want to maybe to say one or two things that, that if you think of, of the emergence, I mean, the, people oftentimes talk about the emergence of the so-called left in Latin America as a result of the breakdown of the Washington consensus. And I think there's some truth in that, but uh, the policies of the Washington consensus. But I think that if you look at the Venezuelan situation, you know, Chavez's emergence in 1998, I think, you, I think it's clear that it's much more than the, the breakdown of the Washington consensus. I think it's the failure of all kinds of development projects, not just, let's say, the opening of the market, neoliberal measures, you know, all of that. It's also state protectionist development. I mean, you have a country like Venezuela, blessed with abundant mineral resources and, you know, petroleum, um, and, you know, from 58 to 98, different forms of economic development, not just neoliberal reforms, largely failed to bring prosperity to the people. So I think Chavez's emergence as a leader in 1998 reflected not just the failure of the national consensus, but the failure of all kinds of development models. And I think we have to keep that in mind as we, as we try to also think of what's happening now. Secondly, I think that Clearly, Chavez uh, represents, um, um, if you think of uh, what I mentioned before, this kind of counter hemispheric counterpoint between right and left, he represents uh, a response to the imperial kind of aspirations of and form of rule of the Bush neocon group. Um, and in that sense, it's extremely, you know, uh, I think uh, interesting and, 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 uh, and exciting to, to see that happen, that someone is opposing the war in, in Iraq, some, someone is opposing the war in Afghanistan, etc., etc. I think that that's important. Someone is opposing the, the way that the free trade uh, zone is being planned by, from Washington. A note of caution, though, however, that if you look at it domestically in terms of one of the first notions that I mentioned about them, you know, being left, which was power, the concentration of power versus the, the dispersion of democratization of power, one of the, I think, concerns that one has from the perspective of Venezuela from within is the extent to which maybe too much power in Venezuela is not being concentrated in the figure of one person. To, to, you know, despite the fact that well, you know, the claim is that this is a democracia participativa y protagonica, participative and protagonic democracy, much of what happens in Venezuela is still very much reflecting some kind of vertical you know, you know, uh, situation in which the caudillo, the leader, determines many of the basic decisions in the country. I think that's a, a reason for concern. But at the same time that this is happening, there is this discourse of democratization which has tremendous importance and which has taken roots. So there are all kinds of grassroots organizations, all kinds of movements, neighborhood associations, which take those words seriously. So the picture is really 
complex because on the one hand you have affirmation at the state level of some kind of centralization of political power, but on the other hand you have a very radical democratic discourse that has taken roots in many, many areas, and we don't know what the result of that is going to be. And the third point, which has to do with, you know, that, that was a domestic scene, the national scene, but the, the, uh, the, 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 it's the articulation between the domestic e economy and the international economy. There is this imperialist, uh, anti-imperialist discourse, I'm sorry, which is shared by many of the leaders, by Evo Morales, etc., etc. But again, there is this question of the necessity to articulate local economy to the international economy. And if you look at, at that situation carefully, then it, the, the picture, I think, is much, much more complex. Uh, uh, I was, you know, if you want, I mean, I just have here one article that I'm not going to read or anything like that, but you might want to see it. It's hap it was published, uh, uh, oh, this is the wrong article. I just want to give you the reference. Uh, Saturday, April 1st, so today's what? Today's Monday, two days ago. And it's an article about the relationship between Chavez and Exxon which is, you know, the, the largest as of today, I mean, they, I think it passed Walmart as in terms of, the, I think the fortune is the top U.S. transnational. And of course it's larger as an economy than Argentina, many countries. And there's a fight about, because Venezuela is shifting its, its relationship to oil producers from uh, contracts of service agreements to joint enterprises, which is a very complicated thing. But I just want to, to signal uh, I mean, the, the article presents a situation of concern, of, of tension, but at the same time says that the report of the Energy Commission uh, of the Energy Department last week in the U.S. reports that Venezuela is a safer place for energy investment in petroleum than Saudi Arabia, Mexico, or any other country. So that it's, it's, it's a, you know, again, it's a... It's a, it's a complicated picture, you know, that, and even this shift from service agreements to joint enterprises that is taking place in Venezuela as we speak, there are 32 companies that were, had service agreements that had to become joint enterprises, is very problematic because a joint enterprise has many more rights than a, a company that, that in which you have a service contract. So, reasons to be careful. So, my, my, I conclude by saying that as we think of, of what's happening in Latin America, maybe it's useful to also to keep in, 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 in mind the tensions and the heterogeneity, because on the one hand we could be concerned that maybe some of these governments might actually be doing the same thing that democratic regimes did in the 90s when we shifted from the, the dictatorships to democracy in trying to implement it, the Washington consensus. So that maybe now this supposed left is doing some of the dirty work of fixing, responding to the limitations of the Washington consensus. And that could be, uh, of course, not a, a very worrisome thing. On the other hand, it could be a situation in which what these governments are doing is pushing the limits of the possible, pressuring these reforms as much as far as they can go, and at the same time empowering popular sectors by the, you know, by the claims that are being made in terms of democratic rights, diversity, the necessity to create a world in which everyone can have a place, women, men, etc., etc., indigenous people, then that, that could be a way in which the articulation of these different demands could have a positive sign. But that, I think this is something that only history can tell. One can also look at, uh, you know, when Bachelet was elected president or, or Evo Morales was elected president, people can argue, in the case of Bachelet, for instance, well, she's condemned to reproduce, you know, the same neoliberal system that, um, that was in place before. But on the other hand, it was very moving to see 
women on television as I, you know, crying, on emocionadas, you know, saying, now we are all, we are all presidents. It's, it makes a difference to have a woman president. It makes a difference to have an indigenous leader president. And whatever the policies they end up enacting, the very fact that of the presence, I think, will mark the future of Latin American movements. Thank you. It's um, kind of useful to be a free-range chicken because you can nibble on the kibble that your colleagues have left behind. And um, I think I'll probably have a go at that. Um, I, I uh, sort of reinvented myself a number of years ago. I decided that uh, being a professor was too feckless of fate. And um, so I went down to Washington, and um, we started a policy, policy, public policy group. And we um, were motivated by what we had witnessed in Chile, where we had a case of, um, of an absolutely democratic figure like Allende, who uh, was on the eve of staging a wonderful experiment of a democratic political process mated to a socialist economy which would dispose of the vulgarity of capitalism and still guarantee that there were no commissars on the, every other block. Um, and of course, uh, the Nixon-Kissinger administration uh, realized the, the, the inherent danger of such a model. This kind of model uh, flew flags and um, had a lot of firepower to it. This model has been um, prevented and forfended over the years. It now reemerges, the prospect reemerges in Venezuela and perhaps uh, very much like, uh, like uh, Emil Zola's remarks on uh, the Dreyfus affair that uh, perhaps uh, Chavez has no idea or has too little idea about the importance of his experiment. But we're talking about uh, a region that has been traditionally despised. It has uh, been uh, visited by uh, elaborate uh, rodomontades of rhetoric, but uh, very little interest. It has been a second tier region. Speak to a State Department careerist of 20 or 30 years ago, desperately fighting to avoid Latin American service in favor of, of being posted to Europe, to Italy, where things really happen. Um, the, um, Latin America has been uh, almost monocultural in its production of um, political themes, just like the typical U.S. newspaper can't handle more than one Latin American crisis at a time. Um, you have to, uh, in a way, package the concept differently in order to arrest the consciousness of legislators and policymakers that you do have an issue here that deserves to be visited. For example, um, take the question of Cuban succession. 
Now, Cuba traditionally is a non-discussable item in Washington, even though in recent months there have been congressional majorities in favor of uh, open travel to Cuba in uh, contrast to administration policy. But uh, any basic political science course, certainly the ones that I handled in my time, would tell you that uh, one of the great advantages of a democracy is its predictability in terms of succession, and uh, that it would make sense to confront, rather than leave things to the unknown, uh, the possibility of wars of succession between Miami types and Havana types, the U.S. obviously getting involved because you can't have instability 80 miles off the shore of uh, Key West. And um, so it would be very plausible to come to the conclusion that negotiation now with Castro would make eminent sense because he has things on his agenda which he would like to take care of. He'd like to in some way guarantee the viability and, and the longevity of his revolution. And of course the United States has its own desiderata. Uh, but there is no discussion of um, this vital issue because uh, uh, what Condoleezza Rice says everything can be discussed. Everything can be discussed except those things in the U.S. Uh, pantheon of um, you know, the sacred, which cannot be discussed, and certainly Cuba is one of them. Well, this monofactoral uh, perception of Latin America once again was seen uh, in the Clinton presidency when Clinton announced that the age of ideology is dead, and the era of trade is, um, is born. This is like a Stendhal novel, like the Red and the Black, um, that um, the Napoleonic Wars are over, so let us turn to uh, our own hearth. Well, of course, um, with the demise of the Soviet Union in 89, um, and the proposal of the free trade area of the Americas. The uh, issue of uh, ideology didn't disappear. It simply went away for a while, but it has come back, and it's come back roaring, and it's come back in a way that the administration doesn't have a clue how to conceptualize it. I have debated, I mean, a division of State Department people in my time. I, have, I don't think I've ever met one with the smarts. Uh, or they were so career-bound that they, did, they didn't dare to think about the unthinkable. Now, um, I have, uh, along with uh, a slew of over a thousand interns that we've had, uh, and uh, one of whom, at the age of 21, today I spoke to the office, was interviewed by four TV stations and radio stations on this or that. Uh, 
uh, certainly on the immigration issue. But uh, what we tried to show these interns was that, you, that this is a good country and you could use its um, basic laws and receive tax exemption at it uh, and attack the administration, challenge them, uh, bring these things to the battlefield, these issues. And we've lost a lot and we've won a few. But um, what we've attempted to do is to bring on an agenda which we thought was appropriate. And the agenda was always focused on how to expand the exercisable options of the generality of the population down there and how to keep the United States out of the way of constructive policy making and yet make the United States available for uh, the transmission of both intelligence technology as well as mechanical technology. Um, this has been a um, often a hapless cause and um, it is because first of all so few people, surprisingly few people care really. I mean I've had a, a thousand conversations with journalists who would say, you know, I have to work very hard to sell an article. I mean, how many conversations I've had with Gary Marks of the Chicago Tribune calling me from Havana where he's posted, um, and he's, he will ask me, do you think this is worth a story? And I, and I said, of course, it's always worth a story. And I, I noticed that most of the times the story never appeared. Um, it is largely because the area is not in the target hair, the crosshairs of American policy making. And it only occasionally makes it to that zone at the time when the issues are framed in a way that vital U.S. national interests are supposedly involved. Of course, this meant the Cold War, this meant the anti-drug, uh, era, then free trade, and now, of course, uh, terrorism. Under these varying rubrics, what you had were the, the, the sort of national security cover to penetrate, to make your position known as a country, the United States. Now, um, I have been a CIA skeptic all my life. Um, I once uh, had a uh, conversation with President Allende in which he said to me that, he said, Vuskovich, who was a socialist uh, member of the, of the cabinet, and Teitelboim, who was a communist senator at the time, he said, those two guys are always talking about the CIA plot to overthrow my government, I don't believe it for a moment. Now, um, every, every major incident involving a leftist group or government that has occurred in Latin America since, since 1973, I've had reservations about a CIA role. And yet, 
in the afterward of the experience, every single time the CIA was involved, even to the point of, this is something which some of you may not be aware of or forgot about, but um, when Michael Manley was the uh, Prime Minister of Jamaica, uh, there was an explosion in front of the U.S. Consulate in Kingston. Um, the U.S. told Manley that the reason why there was an explosion there was because of his too close relationship with Castro and that it was abetting leftist uh, insurgencies in Jamaica and that he better watch out for his own safeguard. Now of course it was later revealed that the CIA set off the bomb. It was a low-grade bomb. It wasn't meant to hurt anybody. It was simply meant to move along a policy. And that is why in sort of adding on to what Fernando had to say. That is why I take very seriously the charge that the Venezuelan government has made against um, the, U the U.S. Embassy that it, one of the U.S. attachés posted to the embassy had uh, engaged some Venezuelan military officers uh, and Get, uh, they got documents of, about deployment from uh, these Venezuelan military men. And, and Chavez ordered the attaché to leave. The United States responded by, here you had the law of proportionality usually operating in these areas, that a consulate does a bad deed, you expel a consulate of that country, of the offending country from your country. But if a military attaché, which is not a particularly high position in an embassy, when he is uh, expelled, you do not expel the second-in-command of the embassy. It's almost unparalleled to do that kind of thing. And the reason why it was done was it was a signal to Chavez that um, the United States has reached a certain point of uh, exasperation with him. Uh, a number of months ago, I had a conversation with an OAS official, and I asked that official, what is your budget for your democratization process that the OAS is carrying on to encourage augment democracy in Latin America? His answer was zero. None, and you're getting what you pay for. And this, of course, reveals a rather fascinating insight in terms of the migration of U.S. regional policy. Because the United States has maintained for a period of time, certainly throughout the, uh, starting with the uh, first Bush administration and then into the Clinton administration, that um, free and fair elections was the gravamen of a democratic process. But what happens, like um, what recently happened in Palestine, what happens when a free and fair election produces a administration that you don't particularly like? Now, the United States had an extremely activist policy about this. It had 
several years ago, uh, the U.S. Uh, embassies posted, ambassadors posted in the field, like Rosa Likin in El Salvador, Herman Rocha to Bolivia, and the U.S. ambassador to Nicaragua, all went in and told the political people in the governments that while the United States favors free and fair elections, the United States will not tolerate the election of Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua, of the FMLN, of Shafi Kandal at the time in El Salvador, or of Evo Morales in Bolivia. Now, these kinds of things start, that is, this type of perception starts circulating, and it, it ends up in such places as the Ibero-American Summit, which is a non-U.S. attended kind of body. In fact, there's kind of an elixir of joy that the U.S. is not there. And what do they talk about? They talk about uh, Secretary of State Powell getting on the phone and calling up Lagos in Chile and Fox in Mexico and telling them, withdraw your ambassadors. That is, Adolfo Aguilar and Juan Gabriel Valdez must leave because they have uh, introduced a notion of odium into the debate on Iraq. Ah, so the U.S. had managed to expel two ambassadors. Juan Gabriel, of course, went on to become uh, the rather bad uh, U.S. representative in um, uh, Haiti, and Adolfo Aguilar went off to be killed in an auto crash. Uh, and, uh, but not before he told some people that, um, and I thought about this during the immigration debate, that my beloved Mexico will always be corrupt. And uh, I, um, of course, I was very reluctant to accept that, but um, there may be some, some wisdom to it. Um, the, um, the U.S. role went on, have I exhausted my time? One minute. One minute. Okay. Um, well, how would I use that minute? <laughs> it's a minute. It takes me a half a minute to think up now. <laughs> um, I think that, um, I really enjoyed the fact that the United States, when it asked Brazil, could it send an advisor to attend the Arab Latin American summit a number of months ago, Brazil turned them down. And I enjoyed the fact that uh, two, there were two um, secretary general candidates of the United States that advocated for the OAS, both of which the OAS refused to allow. Refuse to elect. I mean, refuse to abide by the U.S. move. This, I think, was a challenge to the United States' persistent hubris when it comes to the region. And also, it um, was one more thing. And it and has enabled Latin America to, in increasingly demonstrable ways, 
to liberate itself from the necessity of having an asymmetrical relationship with the United States. That is, we were talking before about this, that when Evo Morales was elected, he didn't come to Washington. He, who had said, we no longer intend to be submissive to the U.S. He didn't go to Washington. He went to what? He went to South Africa and to India. And uh, he went to Europe and he went to uh, uh, Brazil. But not to the United States. Of course, the United States responded by not inviting, uh, by, by canceling the visa of a uh, member of Eva Morales, a woman senator who uh, was coming up here, well identified with Bolivian uh, women issues. Uh, that too became part of the, uh, of the reliquary of, um, of ill memories that Latin America has of uh, U.S. excess. And I've used up my minute. Well, we have uh, some time for questions. Yeah. I'd like to ask the gentleman that just finished. Yeah, Mr. Burns. Yes, if he could, um, on, uh, his opinion on what role does he think both uh, directly and indirectly uh, Fidel Castro has had with uh, respect to the move to the so-called left in Latin America? Mr. Burns? Oh, um, uh, okay. Our feeling is that um, there's been a move to the New Deal in Latin America, but not to the left, and that the United States maintains enormous residual power. Everyone remembers Alan, what happened to uh, Alan Garcia in Peru from 18, 1985 to 1990. He defied the World Bank, as Pearson was to do a decade later, but he didn't succeed. In fact, his presidency was destroyed by that action. Uh, that is, Latin America needs, or thinks it needs, foreign investment. And it needs to be certified as creditworthy by the international lending institutions. And um, they say in order to be a statesman, you have to survive the odd year or two in the presidency. Um, I would say that um, there's another side to that, and that is that in order to survive in the presidency with your own people, you have to be true to your political platform. Uh, as we have seen in Argentina, in Bolivia, in Ecuador, and could see in several other countries, that presidents who ran on a populist ticket, who invalidated their pledge once they were inaugurated, have been tossed out of office by the indigenous population, by work stoppages, by road blockages. Uh, there's a different kind of, uh, of standing like John Locke on his head. And you have, a, that is, it's a state of nature arising up against uh, its exploiters. Fidel Castro, um, if that was the question, um, Fidel Castro is, is revered in Latin America as the grand old man of protest. 
and um, it's not, he's not revered in a programmatic way. In fact, he has advised everyone. He advised Allende, become very friendly with the United States. Don't, take, don't engender hostility with the United States. Look what it's done to me. Um, I think that, um, there, that Chavez is looked upon as the heir. He's the only genuine heir now functioning, probably even more so than Evo Morales, because all of us feel that Evo Morales is going to buckle and is going to... Uh, he buckled before uh, vis-a-vis uh, Sanchez Lozada. And um, uh, Chavez is the only one who is, uh, in terms of political theory, who is formed. And his presidency is going to stand or go down on the issues that he has articulated. Um, uh, Castro is... Uh, uh, Castro's day is uh, is now. I mean, he, in fact, the Cuban economy is relatively booming in terms of its growth rate, and if it hits oil, offshore oil, it's going to mean uh, the demise of the U.S. policy. Mm-hmm. Other questions? Question. Yes. yes sir. Uh, I, I have a question for uh, Professor Cornell. Uh, in your speech, you were saying that uh, uh, one of the very basic problems we find is uh, like, like a gap between the possibility of implementing proper public policies that improve the wealth of people in, in the verge of globalization, so this tension between the national and international, uh, as one of the very basic problems that Venezuela has. Um, how do you connect that problem which is very genuine, with, with an, another one which is related to the very aspirations of uh, Chavez and his political group in terms of uh, political power per se. I mean, in terms of corruption and uh, will, and uh, because most of in terms of corruption and corruption means as a real issue which is behind all the policy making in, in Venezuela right now. In terms of in, in, in a historical moment when the oil prices are really, really high, where the, the, the real income of Venezuela is increasing, um, I don't actually see those like aspirations of implementing policies that are just not well conceived. Uh, I, I much more see like a, an intention of keeping power in the hands of mm-hmm. a bunch of people who is uh, taking power in yeah, that, that's, a, I think, a very good question, and I'm, I'm glad you, you brought it up. I mean, yeah, I, I can answer by, by partially agreeing with you. I mean, I think that, on the one hand, I think there is a tension which is there between um, responding to national demands and trying to implement some programs of national development and, and collective welfare, and uh, integrating the nation uh, responding to commitments in connection to the global economy. That tension is there. And I think that tension has been there for, for, for a long time, not just now, but also even in the previous period of, you know, import substituting industrialization. It also was there during the period of export promotion. It's, it's present now. No model of development has res- adequately responded to that double articulation of, on the one hand, satisfying popular demands, on the other hand, articulating the national economies to the global market. 
I think the very recognition that the very project of modernity and the project of development is very difficult, that it's not succeeding, I might not succeed, has created a context in Latin America which permits or promotes some degree of, of corruption. Corruption understood in all kinds of levels, from the lack of true commitment to programs that are implemented rhetorically, to ineptitude, to trying to benefit personally from all kinds of deals, from you know, investments in all kinds of areas or whatever. So I, th I, I, I think that rather than to oppose those two things, to say, well, you know, there is this conflict and what about, which I thought is the spirit of your question, there is this problem that people want power for itself. I think one of the reasons that people might want power for itself and that there is a tremendous expansion of corruption is that the very project of development itself is not being very successful. And people are aware of that, that to the extent that there are few alternatives of, you know, viable projects, then you have, you know, the proliferation of all kinds of mechanisms in which people try to benefit through those mechanisms. And there is a double discourse on the one hand of national development, modernization, all of that, and people are trying to, to solve the personal situation whatever way they can behind that kind of public discourse because they are aware in one way or another that the project itself won't work. So I would link them rather than oppose them. Okay. Yes. Um, on the one hand, it can be characterized as a shift to the right. Mm -hmm. And in a more detailed level, there is something interesting that is going on discursively, which is this idea of a policy of democratic security, where security, authority, and order appear as a condition of possibility of pluralism and democracy. Mm -hmm. So I would like to see what you what the perspectives are about that. Is, is it? Well, just Anyway, I have a thought on that, which um, um, what has happened is President Oribe has made a Faustian deal to um, get the mobilization of the AUC um, by all sorts of fictive steps. The United States has bought into this deal, while the, uh, the Attorney General keeps on filing extradition requests. It knows that none of these requests will be honored. It has also let the Colombian authorities know that the $600 million they're scheduled to get this year are not jeopardized at all by the fact that they have vacated the most important tool that the United States had to apprehend drug types, which was extradition. Uh, there's been uh, relatively little demobilization that has actually occurred. It's clearly a funnel to uh, get uh, AUC people from having to stand drug trial, drug, uh, dr uh, go to drug courts. Their sentences will be very nominal. Um, they have to pay a kind of insultingly small amount of money to victims of their massacres. Remember that when you talk about the United States um, subscription to crime and punishment, 
it's a very selective type of indignation that the United States has. And in regard to Colombia, even though the State Department, Humanitarian Affairs Bureau, and the, um, uh, the Colombian Army, and a whole series of, of, of Colombian presidents have all acknowledged that the AUC is responsible for the bulk of the human rights violations in Colombia. The AUC is being given this massive pass to walk away from the indescribable crimes that it has committed in Colombia. Uh, just a, a, a brief thing. I mean, it's interesting that I think Uribe is very similar to Chavez. It's uh, ironically. I mean, uh, and they're both very popular. And I think one of the things that Uribe has managed is in a country which has, you know, deeply divided and, and you know, permeated by violence, has, in, you know, created some kind of social peace, at least military peace. And I think that's an incredible achievement. If you, if you look at statistics of what people want in Latin America, including in Venezuela, you find the paradox. Chavez proclaimed the, 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 his revolution a socialist revolution. But this was not something that was nationally discussed. If you ask people, I mean, people don't, don't, are not for socialism in, in, in Venezuela. And it was not, if you think of democracy, something that was discussed even within you know, his party. I mean, what Chavez has said that he was one day in Puerto Alegre, in a meeting in 2004, it was last year in January, and at night he thought, well, the problem of poverty in Latin America cannot be solved through capitalism, so we have to think of socialism. And he decided at that point to change the Bolivarian Revolution into a socialist revolution, okay? But if you look at polls in Venezuela, which is it's extraordinary, you know, how is it that the, you know, a decision of that magnitude is made? I mean, it's remarkable in terms of democracy. But if you ask people in Venezuela, are you Chavista? You know, Chavez is very popular, like almost 60%. If you ask people what they want, they want basically capitalism, and they want social peace, they want security. And I think Uribe, represents a bit of that, because Colombia, I think, under Uribe, has managed to, in part through tremendous help of the U.S. government and the Plan Colombia and all the millions of dollars, managed to establish some kind of temporary settlement of, you know, the, the problem of violence, and also having some kind of uh, development of, of, the, of the economy. And I think that's, you know, part of what the Faustian deal that I think that is being worked out in Colombia. I don't know if that answers your question, but I'm, I think that, ironically, I think that you have here a, a, a path, a capitalist path very much connected with imperial policies, with Plan Colombia, which is a, a, a you know, a really a, a plan of penetration of the U.S. and control of Colombia, which has favored, you know, a, a, a government that is a populist government in a way. No. 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 Yes, Chris. Um, Fernando, you spoke about a kind of multiple quality, and Mabel was talking about definitions and re, um, looking at new definitions of what is the left or how we discuss it. And it occurred to me that thinking about the different sectors that are being represented, that there are... There, there's a, a changing concept of citizenship, mm -hmm. and um, I don't know if either of you would like to comment on that, but that we're seeing sectors, we see the indigenous movements, we see um, 
in different cases, different um, sectors who are actually, while there may be corruption, and while there may not actually be any tangible good, there is an impression that there is a sense of citizenship in the country. Um, does that fit into either of your comments? Well, um, briefly, I think that you know the very notion of citizenship is like every other notion is a historical construct that is constantly contested and changing. If you remember, like during the French Revolution, the Declaration of, of the Rights of Man and Citizen, was that it said, you know, man, men, not women, although, you know, proclaimed within some kind of universality, and citizen, but the citizens meant French citizens. But of course, you know, in the Americas, in Haiti, the people who became familiar with that, and they became familiar because, you know, people read and also talked about such things. And those of you who read The Kingdom of This World by Carpentier have a, you know, a literary version of that, but those of you who read The Black Jacobins by C.R. James have another version of Laurent Dubois' wonderful book, The Colony of Citizens. What you, what you see there is that in the Americas, the very notion of citizenship was given new form by including slaves. And so by 1794, then the French Assembly had to include the slaves of Saint-Domingue as part of the notion of citizenship. And I think historical since then, the meaning, the scope of citizenship is changing. I think one of the fascinating things that's happening in Latin America now is that citizenship is giving new meanings by all these movements. Mm -hmm. If before, you know, let's say up to the 80s, uh, many Latin American states defined the project of one of integration within a particular universalistic project defined from a middle class white perspective. Now I think there is a proliferation of a, of a different understanding of citizenship in which you have notions of multiple nationalities, of, of, of nations that are multi-ethnic, of also the questions of gender which are important. I mean, then I was very moved when I saw like this woman in crying, ahora todas somos presidentas, you know, this ordinary woman in who maybe that might could have been a Mapuche, Mapuche woman. Maybe Bachelet's policies will counter, will go against her, ultimately, you know. But that cannot be changed, the fact that she's felt empowered by the fact that the woman was president of, of, of Chile. And I think her notion of citizenship will change because she felt more empowered as a woman, even at home, in relationship to her husband. So I think that that's, that, that notion of citizenship is constantly cha changing in Latin America. Okay. In my opinion, I, uh, for this reflection in particular, I prefer to speak about subjectivity instead of uh, citizenship. Because citizenship still sounds to me like too institutionalized. And in some cases, like in the case of Bolivia, for instance, but, but it's different in different countries. But in the case of Bolivia, where people are discovering uh, the possibility of participation, is more like uh, uh, the, the concept of being the subject of politics or an agent, a possible agent of social change or political participation. And that is still at, uh, um, uh, at the level of uh, construction of subjectivity for me more than like the, uh, I, I wouldn't use the, uh, still the concept of uh, citizenship because citizenship also in Latin America has some meaning of exclusion. Uh, you know, not everybody is a citizen, is, is a citizen, and not all citizens participate or have equal opportunities. So 
that uh, that is the distinction that I would make at, at that point. But would you, would you agree that maybe these changes subjectivity might also affect notions of citizenship? So there is some kind of dialectic here that maybe it's. I, th I really like what you're saying. I mean, but I think that the very fact that people's sub subjectivity changes, they might make you know demands on the political system that would amplify, widen the, the, the what is meant by citizenship. I think I think that is that is the process that we see in progress, mm -hmm. that the liberal conception of uh, citizenship might be changing towards a different mm -hmm. uh, concept that includes other things. That, uh, I think that what we are seeing in Latin America now is a, a process of resignification of many terms that we were using in other historical, uh, historical concepts, contexts, and that now mean other things, or we need to update our vocabulary and the, the idea of nation and citizenship and uh, or even institutions and the left and right, all of that is changing but we are still using uh, by inertia this uh, vocabulary that, that is uh, tinted with so many connotations. But what's scary too is that the market itself is very exclusionary. So that if you look at what's happening in the last 20 years, you have a growth of poverty and growth of disparity and exclusion of people from the formal market. So this very notion of citizenship, which is political at the same time, without the backing of some kind of institutional connection to the economy, to formal connection, is very dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I, I am, it strikes me that well, this is not the first time that, you know, when people are talking about the, the alleged turn to the left in Latin America, that the first thing they say is, you know, they express a certain reluctance, you know, about, well, the meaning of the leg, and, you know, talking about Latin America as a region. But still, like, somehow, uh, the idea has, you know, a life of its own, and it's alive and keeping it, even when people that know about this say that, well, this is really a problematic idea, you know, the idea is still being used. So, I mean, I wonder why. I mean, it's like a, you know, a typical media soundbite, you know, that it's used just because, you know, it's useful, or is there something, you know, particularly like here in the U.S., it, I mean, it's quite common to use it. Uh, I mean, I, I was in, in Mexico uh, a couple of months ago, and I, I didn't detect any kind of a, you know, active promotion of this idea, even though, like, s certain sectors are trying to use it in order to counter, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the López Obrador, the, 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 the left candidate. Mm -hmm. So, um, I guess my question is, how do you explain, you know, the, the resilience of this idea of the turn to the left in Latin America? Well, I see some of these candidates, you know, I'm interested in your observation. Um, some of these candidates, in fact, all of these candidates, to a more or less degree, have come forth, have articulated political ideas that uh, speak about autonomy, speak about uh, no more impunity. Uh, they subscribe to a package of ideals that are not usually identified with the United States. And most of them put some whipped cream at the top by directly savaging the United States. Uh, this almost has become a badge of honor for these political candidates and these political movements. How serious are they? Will they evaporate? Well, they might evaporate and they may not be all that serious, but they certainly are something different than we've witnessed the past number of decades. And in itself, it represents 
an interesting challenge to the United States. And it has at least slowly begun a debate on the subject that perhaps will yield some insights, which we don't have right now. Yeah, that, that question is, is very good, and, and I don't have an answer to it, but I, I think, you know, the, the tension between changing historical realities and the language we have to describe it is, has, is present not only in relationship to this problem of the left, but in, in terms of all kinds of things. And it's always interesting to see when is it that, you know, why and what situations there is a change of terminology, and in, in what situations all the terms keep coming back and seem to to have a life of their own. And this is one of those situations in which um, there is a kind of tendency for the, for the, the right-left distinction, even as it seems to vanish, to come back. And you know, I was trying to think whether, in fact, there was a distinction between usage in the North, in the US, and in Latin America. And I think there might be a tiny bit of distinction, which the US is used more often in the media than in Latin America. But I think it's also used in Latin America a lot. And I was just thinking of, you know, like, for instance, the Oropet Coffee in Venezuela just wrote the book Las Dos Izquierdas, the two lefts, and tried to make distinctions between, you know, like a, a radical kind of, some, you know, dogmatic left and a more open left, etc., etc. So I think the terms are there. And oftentimes when people try to identify you in interviews and stuff like that, they happen to me a lot, they say, are you leftist? You know, and I say, well, if I leftist, you mean having a heart on the left and being for, for dignity and equity and justice, yes, I'm a leftist, you know. So you have to kind of qualify it. But, you know, it's at times more, more useful than terms like, you know, are you socialist or this or the other, because at times those terms are so charged. So I think there's a kind of neutrality about the terms of flexibility, which makes them particularly uh, dynamic and useful sometimes. Mm -hmm. I, I, yeah. I would like to say something about that because it's an interesting question and I thought about it a lot without finding a very good answer, but that's why I gave a lot of the, uh, a few features that could sort to characterize or that could be applied um, to different um, political experiences nowadays in Latin America that might be characterized as uh, positions in the left. Um, but I also think that in the United States they tend to package everything together and anything that deviates from uh, traditional politics is considered the left and then it's very difficult to analyze particular cases uh, from that point of view. So I think that we uh, need to be careful and uh, we can see that there is a lot of uh, common uh, features in these movements that we were mentioning before but also that uh, they say centro izquierda and there is izquierda and there is radical izquierda and there is this and that and also there is a lot of uh, something I have not heard uh, much elaboration uh, about it today and I would like to ask my, my colleagues say how they, they think about it and it's the idea of populism you know I, I was very interested in seeing that Ernesto Laclau's uh, last book is again on populism he knows that there is something there there is something in uh, uh, Latin American's uh, political reality to Today that is uh, going back and calling for more elaboration on the concept and uh, for a fresh uh, approach to the idea of populism and its political Okay, the, the truisms that were pushed by Bretton Woods for the first time since the end of World War II are under total threat. Now, the horsepower or the firepower being used against them is relatively modest, but you cannot possibly talk about 
the inevitability of privatization, market reforms, market access, and so forth, in the era of Enron, and I dare say, if the United States had five million attorney generals, that wouldn't be enough to prosecute all the, the corporations that have filed fake taxes in order to maximize profits for their stockholders and so forth. But we are seeing, um, you can see it in various little bits and pieces, the Brazil-India-South Africa alliance of three of the dominant regional powers, very important step, it may really go somewhere, and in the increasing readiness on the part of government leaders from the, uh, from the developing world willing to challenge the uh, inevitable brilliance of the World Bank and, and, and the IMF and so forth, I think that this demonstrably is a very important trend. I don't know where it's going to go or whether it will evaporate. We've seen so many of these things evaporate in the past, but there's something different in the air right now. And uh, I, I think it's going to be a very interesting uh, theme to watch. Can you be about populism? He has his hand up first. You yeah, in the back here, and then the two, you have two of you. So I was wondering if the panelists um, could address the continuities between, let's say, uh, the 20 years of neoliberalism and um, um, the recent turn left. And, and I mean that in a particular way. I mean, not as a reaction, but as a kind of condition of possibility. I'm thinking about the case of Bolivia, where the Cocaleras, in many ways, were, they took advantage of um, uh, participatory um, laws that like went into effect creating communities and a community-based politics for territorial rather than a kind of um, labor-based, you know, the old model of the corporatist state. Um, and were able to insinuate themselves into this, this, this new um, neoliberal space that was brought about exactly by Sancho de Rosado, for instance. And, and I'm just wondering if, you know, I mean, we hear a lot about um, the leftist turns of rejection or as a taking up of the failures of the Washington consensus. But to what degree can you also look at the leftist turn as coming out of a type of politics was made possible by, um, you know, maybe the second generation of neoliberal forms, reforms, you know, focus on ideas of community, community empowerment, NGOs looking towards communities, you know, you know, not labor politics, but let's say territorial based, you know, land based type politics, something like that, community based politics. Well, I actually was trying to suggest that in my own comments that that's one of the, the dangers I see, that in fact all of these movements could actually be trying to uh, be both the result of that, but also we're working out the contradictions of that. And if that's the case, and if the model that's being implemented is a reform, basically model of you know a, a market with a, uh, some kind of welfare measures uh, and, and less sharp edges, it, it could you know be very you know uh, you know a matter of concern because it. it in thinking of the left, and, and, and it could also give the left a bad name in that, in that it's not a radical demand, it's just a, a, a very soft reform of a system that wasn't working. And of course, populism, going back to your question, has been a, a 
the way in which in Latin America many of you know multi-class alliances have been forged in the name of the of the pueblo, what has resulted is very much a system that has benefited to a large extent a sector of, which is not necessarily a pueblo but the privileged elite. Now, historically, of course. Radical demands oftentimes have a way of also getting a life of their own, and so you know it's very hard to control what's going to happen in the long run. So this is a situation of you know uncertainty, and I think that there is a possibility that what you are saying might happen, but there is a possibility that maybe uh, you know those radical demands will lead to a much more serious revaluation of the development model that is not just a matter of affecting Latin America but the whole world. I mean, if you think what's happening to energy policy just petroleum, for instance, and energy in, in general, this is not just a matter of concern for Bolivia, the gas, or Venezuela, you know, anything like that. It's concerning the matter of the whole country, the whole world. And when you think of 7 billion people and, you know, and the U.S. consuming, you know, 50% uh, of the energy and 20% of the gasoline, and this is a model that's being implemented, and many of these in, you know, investments in Latin America, including in Venezuela, including in Bolivia, are directed towards promoting this model of development, the effects of this are not simply felt in Bolivia or in Venezuela, but also in this country. So I think the solution has to be a radical reorientation of the you know, civilizational models in which what is at stake is the life of you know, everyone in the planet, not simply people in, in Latin America. And obviously this can only happen if people in the U.S. also worry about what's happening in Alaska and what happens in their homes and what happens in, you know, in, in the gas stations, you know, what kind of energy policy Bush has, what's going to happen in the future. Mm -hmm. There's a question here, yes. Well, it, uh, I'd like to see you visualize or, or foresee the new relationships of the United States with Latin America, taking into consideration that uh, let's suppose, assuming mm -hmm. that Andres Manuel Obrador wins mm -hmm. elections in Mexico, Ollanta in Peru, and maybe in Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua, and so on. Uh, and uh, take into consideration also the new, the rising of new powers in the world, mm -hmm. such as China, mm -hmm. uh, Brazil, mm -hmm. India, uh, and Europe. Mm -hmm. Europe. So I think uh, I, I see uh, the great gap is the uh, lack of um, ability of the U.S. policy to integrate the continental America, mm -hmm. so to interact with all the, these other powers, mm -hmm. especially with Europe and China and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, so I just uh, um, uh, wonder if the U.S. needs desperately mm. to apply a policy not of uh, uh, focus on just national security and preemption, mm -hmm. preemption but how to uh, improve the uh, U.S. Mm. image mm -hmm. in Latin America mm. uh, how to uh, be an example of integration continental integration mm. so that together this platform Mm -hmm. could uh, interact with this other platform. Mm -hmm. okay. So I just wonder, just assuming, assuming that the rescue and the, <laughs> the left will win in mm -hmm. Mexico and uh, uh, Peru. Okay. 
también Nicaragua, bueno, mm. ha de Bolivia, Venezuela, Argentina, Brasil, and so on. My fear is that you know things, all these movements might end up reinforcing existing patterns of inequality and economic development worldwide. That you know the triumph of Lopez Obrador, Evo Morales, you know, is that he might buckle in, or he might already be doing it, will reinforce the system. I mean, that's my fear. My hope would be that the, the triumph of this of this movements and the pressure from below plus pressure from metropolitan centers and people within metropolitan nations will lead maybe eventually to a, a more uh, radical uh, transformation of you know global uh, productive and political structures that would make it possible for humanity or all people seven billion people to have a decent life I mean this model is a, with the one that's being implemented is an exclusive model it's a model that polarizes it's a model that concentrates wealth in a few hands and in a few regions I think what we need is a, a different model of development and I think that maybe the presence of all these presence in different in different places and different states will lead will help promote a, a rethinking of of, you know, models of civilization. Mm -hmm. that, that would be my hope. Okay. I think that we have a reception, so that I... Those you of had you a question for a long time. Maybe you can ask the well, okay, we'll just stop here. Um, I am uh, afraid about the goals of many of the main leaders of Latin America are uh, the and, and their ideas. For example, Evo Morales has said that uh, uh, in Cuba there is a fair democracy. There is what? A fair democracy. A fair democracy. Yeah. Um, Hugo Chavez, along the many things he has said, he has said that uh, he wants to resemble Fidel Castro and uh, in some sense that's the goal for Venezuela. Mm -hmm. So I'm afraid that the goals of many of the leaders in in the region are directed towards uh, a two-left, what I would say, a communist party. So, for that, for that point of view, do you think that they are looking forward to achieve those goals, that goals, those goals? Do you think also that they are looking forward to have like a new or resemble the new the Soviet Union and regarding Hugo Chavez in Venezuela I, I have the question of how, how much is the, the power that he, that he have and that he can handle regarding those aspects I have heard I know he has a lot of power he, he controls much of the, of the state and we have a highly, have a very high oil revenue mm -hmm. that is totally controlled by him. And how can you quantify the power that he can have, and how how that can be? Mm. Um, 
together with the ideals and goals of mm. the other currently mm. uh, and prospective leaders in Latin America. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to answer the second question first. How much power does Chavez really have? And how you can, can you can to quantify that? And I think it's impossible to quantify it. I can only say that he has lots of power and that he might uh, probably very likely win the election in oh, this year. There is a presidential election coming up. And in part, he has power because of, you know, he has managed to embody the aspirations of many people, even if some people are critical of his, you know, what he's doing. The first question, and more difficult question, is whether the, you know, the ideals of, of Chavez and Hugo Morales are too close to this Cuba, the model of democracy of Cuba, uh, and, and uh, that's the concern, uh, right, that, that you have. And I guess... Um, if you look at actually what Chavez is doing in Venezuela, it's not, he might say that, but he's not doing that. I mean, he's not moving towards any kind of thing similar to what's happening in Cuba. He's promoting a, a, you know, a capitalist system in Venezuela and in the name of, 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 of some kind of socialism, but he's not you know, undermining, you know, socializing capital or land or anything like that, and actually promoting small and different kinds of capitalist enterprises, trying to displace the locus of accumulation from old groups to new groups, but certainly not anything similar to what happened in Cuba. But I think the, the important thing is to think of this not just at the time or, or you know, in terms of existing, really existing socialism like the Soviet Union or Cuba now, which is, you know, whatever, you know, your, your, your own understanding of it, but to think also that maybe if really existing socialism didn't quite work in the Soviet Union or in Cuba might not work as as some people might want to have it worked. Really existing capitalism hasn't worked either. I mean, that the problem is that neither system has managed to solve the problems of humanity. So the question is not to, you know, to choose one or the other, but to, to think of an alternative to both. And I think that in thinking about maybe the fact that in Cuba there is some kind of social equality, more or less, and there is a welfare system that more or less works, Chavez is expressing an aspiration. He's not saying that he's going to copy that model exactly. I don't think that's what is at stake. I think what is at stake is a critique of the profound inequalities that any existing system has produced and the need to develop an alternative. And I think that's what, in some way or another, that Evo Morales or Chavez are expressing, even if in practice they are working within the existing system. I would add one thought to that, and that is uh, I've closely followed the Venezuelan situation, and I am very sympathetic to those who have lost a lot in that, uh, you know, the middle class folks who have been hurt by that. But the problem of the middle class is it's not interested in being the loyal opposition at all. It's interested in destroying this government. And right now it's engaging in largely peaceful means. And what I worry about is that this could deteriorate into some form of armed conflict. Um, what should be said about uh, Chavez, with all of his shortcomings, is he is not a human rights violator. And there's incontestable evidence to that. Also, um, the opposition never wasn't cruel to the Pardos, to the Browns. It simply ignored them. It never saw them. They weren't part of the nation. They didn't benefit in the revenue from the oil. The inf 
infrastructure, it was only eastern Caracas that was built up, not the slums and the barrios that never saw doctors or institutionalized schools and so forth. So, the a very dangerous turn now is that the opposition has decided to use non-participation in elections as a tool. It can't win these elections. It doesn't have the numbers. A majority of Venezuelans are saying no to the corruption of the past and to the largesse that they're now gaining access to from the, the investments that Chavez is making in his misiones in the poor areas of the of the country, um, but what what the what the opposition needs is, a, is leadership, and you know leadership that is committed to a democratic process. I think that far more than Chavez, it's the opposition that's today's menace to democracy. And I don't say that with any sense of joy. Hmm. Mabel, do you want to say anything just to close? Well, we're going to keep conversation. Thank you so much. You have been wonderful and very patient. And, uh, well, we have a reception have a next door. So, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, but...